0: Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review of Streets of Fire, starring Michael Perret. Diane Lane, Willem Dafoe, Amy Madigan, Deborah Van Valkenburg, Bill Paxton, Stoney Jackson, and Rig Moranis. Directed by Walter Hill, released in 1984 in a $14.5 million dollar budget, grossed $8 million at the box office. So, Ron, what's your background with Streets of Fire here as we wrap up our rock and roll dystopia trilogy?
1: It was a random thing I saw on probably TCM Underground several years ago, but it was one of those movies that when I saw who all was in it, I was immediately like, okay, I'm definitely going to watch that. And I did, and it was amazing. So there's no like big backstory. I'm not the number one super fan of uh, of uh, Michael Perret or anything, but uh, I just saw this movie. I thought, this movie's insane, and this movie's great. And it earned a coveted permanent spot on my DVR until I got rid of Cable. So
0: very nice. I remember seeing this growing up uh, and rented it I think because I was a huge Eddie in the Cruisers, Mark. I loved that movie. I still love that movie. Um, and I, I think I've seen so much Michael Perry. Like the way you ride for Michael Dudikoff, I think I ride for Michael Perry. I've just i seen him in almost everything he's ever done. And I don't know why I just keep going back to him, but he's just I, I love him. I love the story. He was a chef and it's you know all of a sudden, yeah, I'll be an actor. You know, with this sort of knockoff <laughs> Stallone thing he's got going on there's something about it and but I remember just bits and pieces of Streets of Fire until I got ready to watch it for this review and then it man it all started flooding back to me because the thing that I think I know and what most people are probably going to know most about this movie is the freaking soundtrack and particularly the two Jim Steinman songs that just dominate the whole narrative and everything here and I will put my cards on the table now. I love Jim Steinman stuff. I like all of his operatic songs. I'm a big fan of musical theater and rock and roll. So it's the marriage of those things. Listen to a lot of meatloaf growing up. Still do not ashamed. Love all of that stuff. So I was down to come back and do this again. And the thing that I can't get is you look who's in this thing and, and who's behind it again. You got you know the the team that wrote 48 hours. You got this producing powerhouse in Joel Silver, you've got Diane Lane who at the time was an up and coming star. I mean, this was a big deal to get her. Nobody knew who Willem Dafoe was at the time, but you got Deborah Van Valkenburg back. Um, you got this great cast of characters all over this thing. How did this miss so badly at the box office?
1: That is, uh, that's actually a great question. And I think that's one of the big mysteries about the film. Um, that people have asked Walter Hill about it. And people have asked, you know, people associated with the production about it. Uh, Michael Perret has talked about the movie at length. He was, he was, when they were up shooting, they had such positive feedback from the studio that he thought, well, my next decision is going to be whether or not I want to come back for the sequel and how much money to ask for. And then the sequel never happened because for whatever reason it just, it just was a misfire at the box office and, and, uh, I'm not, I'm not I'm not sure why cuz I think this moves amazing.
0: Just Oh there's there's so much about this that is in modern cinema and we're going to talk about it as we get into it, but there's a good chunk of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that would not exist if it was not for (laughs) movies like this. There's also a lot of Tim Burton's career that would not be if this movie wasn't a thing and we'll talk about that later too. But yeah, I'm just amazed. I kind of think of it maybe kind of like The Thing. You know, John Carpenter talks about, I love it when people bring me Thing DVDs to sign because I wish they had been alive when that movie was out because (laughs) you that failed and cost me all these different jobs and now everyone loves it and I can only think this one is maybe the same way that it's it's found a cult status because nobody knew what it was. It was unlike most of anything else you, you could see at the time and maybe people just weren't ready for that in 1984. I don't know. It was, it was a different time for sure.
1: Yeah, this has definitely gone on to be one of those really influential movies. Uh, I mean, because if you look at if you look at RoboCop, they, they have so much uh, of just the general look of the grittiness of, of the, the weird grittiness of RoboCop comes from Streets of Fire. Seven kind of takes place in its own little world, kind of like this movie. Uh, you know, this is this has become a really influential, strangely influential movie in terms of its perception, uh, particularly visually. And the the weird thing about that is that Walter Hill had an absolute had an absolute nightmare trying to direct all the music scenes. Yeah, but uh, they come out really good. They look really good. So
0: yeah, I've I've heard so many interviews of him talking about like I had no idea what I was doing. I don't know how to direct music scenes, and I was like, dude, you you built the archetype for like ten years worth of music videos what are you talking about? was <laughs> like the, oh, you and Andrew yeah. Laszlo, your, your DP completely nailed how that, how a performance video is supposed to look. Yeah. Which is the
1: amazing thing. Cause this movie from behind the scenes, at least was, was supposedly like a, not a good experience for most of the people involved. And yet the movie itself turned out great because Michael Perry, especially has spoken at length about how, uh, he doesn't think Walter Hill liked him because he was young and needed direction. And Walter Hill is famously not the sort of guy you go to when you need motivation. Uh, one of his, one of his favorite quotes is don't come to me to tell me how, to act. I'm the director. I direct. I
0: think Perry would, would still be talking about this movie. So I'll ask him about it, which I think is cool. At least he doesn't, you know, run away from it. I don't think Diane Lane's ever said a word about it since the, like the few little behind the scenes things you get from her that are from like 1984. I don't think she talks about this anymore. Um, William Defoe probably doesn't remember he was in it. He's only been <laughs> in like 500,000 other things. And uh, Amy Madigan might be an interesting person to ask about this. Cause my wife watched this with me and she said that woman hasn't changed at all. I was like, right? She's a vampire. Like she looks exactly the same it's it's kind of wild but the I mean the other thing man you got you know Michael T Williamson you got Grand Bush Robert Townsend back there was Tony Jackson doing the dowop group and I, I don't know it was it was just neat to see all these faces of people you know and then you know man oh good old Bill Paxton just you know mugging it for everything it's worth in that stray cats hairdo that he's got it's so neat to see him do that like we talked about last time apparently he was the thing that kept everybody kind of up on the set because Jim Steinman will tell you this was was a total disaster and they kept spending money on stuff they didn't need to spend money on and it just blew his mind. He's like I can't believe you'll just spend a million dollars on a tarp. You don't need it. Just, just shoot outside. So <laughs> he said, you know, like you could go to Chicago and shoot. You rebuilt Chicago in LA. What are you doing? Well, that's the weird
1: thing. They did shoot in Chicago, but then they went to LA and they built a a massive set on the on the studio back lot. Yeah. After they had already shot in Chicago, it's like why did you Do one or the other. Uh, You don't necessarily need to do both. Uh, I'm sure you can fake your way through the subway, or an L train, excuse me. But yeah, um, and the weird thing about this movie, for being so musical, it's like the main cast are not musical people. But around them, you've got like Bill Paxton, who had a new wave band, uh, Martini Ranch, that's pretty weird and and a lot of fun. And you have... uh, E.G. Daly. we no don't look better for being in Rob Zombie movies and stuff these days, but is also a singer and a pretty, and a really good one. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Oh yeah, a we're going
0: to talk about that one band and, and the battery or whatever that is straight out of a Rob Zombie movie.
1: Oh, you uh, mean, uh, Captain Clegg and the night creatures, uh, Father, Captain Clay, senior of the Night Creatures.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. That is exactly what I thought. Also, I knew it was the Flash Dance Girl doing the dance. I didn't know you could strip the 50s doo wop, but um, now I know that. Um, to leave her and Stoller songs, which is just amazing. Um, but, um, she also kind of looks like the chick that played Zool or whatever in um, Ghostbusters. I don't think it's the same one, but she just kind of had that list. I think it was the hair. Uh, but we'll yeah. get into it. I, yeah, I, I guess before we go any further, though, Ron, there are probably a lot of people that maybe don't really remember this, don't know what Streets of Fire is. So please, for the uninitiated, tell us what this movie's all about.
1: I'd love to. Ellen Aim and Tom Cody were going nowhere fast as a couple. So she takes up with super promoter Billy Fish, while Tom goes off to serve in the army. Years later, Ellen returns to their home, the Richmond, for a benefit concert. After bringing the house down with a blistering open number, a new sorcerer named Raven rolls in with his motorcycle gang, the Bobbers, and they take Ellen deeper and deeper into their neighborhood, the Battery. The Forbidding Battery, I should say, because it's very forbidding looking. When his sister Reva writes for him to come save Ellen and hopefully restart their countdown to love, Tom returns. He teams up with an ex-army soldier named McCoy, who more than holds her own against a bunch of big studs as she, Billy Fish, and Tom stage a daring rescue. On the run, and jumping from car to car, place to place, Ellen tells Tom she had a difficult choice between him and a career, and the choice was never going to be you. Tom acts as if he doesn't care anymore and is only in the rescue for the reward money he negotiated with Billy Fish. Along the way, our characters hook up with the traveling R&B singers, the Sorrells, and together... They all make it back to the Richmond. The blue shadows of love thunder across the sky during an afternoon rainstorm, which leads to a steamer reunion for Tom and Ellen. Warned by the police to leave town the night before Raven shows up for a final fight, Tom sends Ellen with McCoy on a train in the opposite direction. He and Raven hold the snake and fight with sledgehammers before Tom finally bests Raven with fisticuffs. Knowing that he loves her, but that Billy is better for her, Tom decides to leave. He says goodbye to Ellen, content to dream about her, and promises to be there if she needs him again. He tags up with McCoy and the Desperados ride off into the night, while Ellen Aim and the attackers, fight by the Sorrells, dance for the restless and the brokenhearted at a concert where the people celebrate what it means to be young and credits roll. <laughs> Jay Jay, that was a that was a great job on that plot summary, by the way. <laughs>
0: So, for those of you that may not know the joke, I worked the title of every song in the soundtrack in the plot summary because it's only fitting, right? I mean, that's really what it's built around. Even though the songs don't <coughs> necessarily appear quite in that order, at least the first and the last one are. But yeah, good job working through that, man. So much to unpack and get into in this one. And so, um, I think the one I want to start with, I want to start with the whole idea of Ellen Aim and the attackers, and kind of this. Uh, there is something about like rock and roll chick singers leading a band or something that has always just been super cool. And I don't mean like alluring and like hubba hubba. I mean like there's just something awesome and cool about uh, these like Pat Benatar is sort of my go-to for this. These little diminutive women who come out there and can just blow the roof off with their voices and these bands that just kick behind them. And that opening number is, you know, for somebody who's not a singer, <coughs> Diane Lane comes out and does a hell of a job lip syncing while that band is kicking behind her. And for what I understand, that was like one of you know the band was Steinman's like buddies that were his studio band and flanked the singers that really are on the song. And that's why they look so good. The like, first time I watched this, I was like, I said, man, these guys are pantomiming Great if they're just playing along to it. And then I realized I was like, no, nah, th- th- that's like that's the chords of the song. Like these guys must know what they're doing. And I looked it up. But what a what a neat Intro to everything. We kick the house lights up, everybody's getting off work and going to the big rock show, and here comes little Diane Lane out there and just steals the whole night.
1: Yeah, I could definitely appreciate your um, your fascination with that. For me, it's like Joan Jett, because Joan Jett is famously mm-hmm. like five one. Yeah. Or like five two at most. You know, and people like Lita Ford and fans like heart. I definitely get that to me. The, the, the greatest example of that was when uh, a few years ago I went to see, or we went to see Wanda Jackson. Oh, cause it's like, here's your grandma coming out on stage in this crazy fringe coat. And then she starts, <laughs> she starts singing and it's like watching the clocks roll back. It's a, it's amazing. Cause at least when we saw her last, she still had that great gravelly voice. And, and that, uh, Raspy howl and, and, you know, that fierceness just tempered with the wisdom of, you know, having been through a lot of a lot of stuff.
0: When my brother was at West Point, he remembers vividly actually being on the team of cadets that worked the concert where Stevie Nicks came and played West Point. And just, he said, man, he said, all I know is she was putting a spell on the whole crowd because all 4,000 people were just locked on her. He said, but she sounded amazing. And that's another one, too. Like, you look at her and you're like, okay. And then you hear her and you're like, holy goodness, where's that coming from? It's just neat to watch it, like, attack. And I think what's cool (coughs) about this is that Ellen Aim is already super famous. Like, we're not watching her rise. We're not getting any of that stuff. Is She's coming back to the hometown for a benefit gig, much against her boyfriend producer's wishes, by the way, because he's not making any money off all these kids here tonight, dang it. But um, Rick Moranis in a real cynical role, too, which is a different turn for anything you've ever seen him do but it's just neat to watch that. Just how cool this all seems and everybody's singing along. And it's like, man, that's, that must be what it feels like to be, you know, really famous and go back home and everybody knows your songs and stuff.
1: Yeah. That, the, the whole setup for this is pretty great. Cause they don't need to tell you that Ellen aim is a big deal. Like when she walks out on stage, it's very clear. Oh, she is a big deal. Like she is, she is a, a hot property. She's a known thing. and, Later on in the movie, it explains why Billy seems to just have big wads of cash, just <laughs> easily accessible <laughs> at all times. Yeah,
0: he's always got money. I mean, he's obviously we're t- Billy Fish. We, we got to talk about brand <clears throat> because I just laid it out too. But I mean, he's the representation of like the corporate rock goon or whatever, right? But. He does know talent when he sees it, and he gets it in the right place, and he can make things happen. He's just one of those—he's so sleazy, and it's, that's what's so different about this. And you, and you hear Paré talk about it. He's like, yeah, I did not get along with Rick Moranis. He said, I don't understand insult comics. He said, I just don't—he said, "You know, if somebody said something like that to me, I'd just punch him in the face. He said, I don't, don't really—you don't get that guy? He said, so we didn't really talk. He said, but looking back on it, he really appreciated what Moranis was trying to do. Moranis famously hated this because he wasn't allowed to improvise. And do all of his second city stuff, and you know, be able to you know joke around and do what he likes to do and riff. Um, they they had him read it very straight and be very, again, very cynical. But I loved him. I thought he was a great used car salesman.
1: Yeah, that's a great description for him too, especially based off of his outfits in this movie, which oh are, yeah. are some of the worst things ever committed to film, without being funny. They're bad in a realistically bad sense.
0: I mean, it's like one of the stray cats got a real job, and <laughs> then became became a rock producer or something like that, or a rock manager. But but yeah, I like it's his whole thing. Jim
1: Phantom goes to
0: A Yes, yes, exactly. So I, I like that whole, the whole bit though. And I love this opening again where we, it's a, it's a killer song too, by the way. Nowhere Fast is an amazing song. And it's, again, if you've ever listened to any of Jim Steinman's songs and you have, cause you've all heard the Bonnie Tyler song and you've all heard Meatloaf songs and stuff like that, don't deny it. You hear this and there's something about Steinman's songs is that they always have this like, rock and piano track and all this stuff. And they're always about like the struggle of youth kind of coming up, right? Like that's what a lot of them are about at least. And I mean, he's got such a way with words. I mean, the man writes just poetry and to watch Diane Lane sit up there and just spit that out. And I know it's not her singing it, but again, you watch her and it's like, man, she didn't miss it. Like she really, really knew the song. You could tell. And just commanded it. It was it was cool. And only to be topped by the fact that we get Willem Dafoe and his motorcycle gang riding in where he is wearing what I can only describe as, like, leather overalls. And has got this, like, Dracula hairdo going on, man. What in the hell is Raven Shattuck?
1: Yeah, it's like a... Yeah, I always assumed they were vinyl. Uh, <laughs> they were Yeah, like, something. They were like, yeah, like, shiny PVC... Uh, overalls and he's got the like biggest, like the the tightest like quiff that I th- think has ever been in a movie. It's it's insane, this guy's hair. Uh, but yeah, it it, it it ends up becoming a Dracula looking thing, which which makes a lot of sense considering it's Gary or not Gary it's considering it's Willem Dafoe, who is a creepy looking gentleman by nature anyway. But man. With that haircut and him being so so like slim and so oddly dressed and so strangely magnetic, it's vampire is a great description for him because he he does look like a vampire.
0: Well, I mean, that's how they kind of come to him in the crowd. As you see him in the darkness, lurking forward, and then the light comes up, and I'm like, "That's every Dracula movie I've ever seen." I mean, that's exactly <laughs> how he enters the room. And I, all I needed him to do was to lock eyes with Diane Lane and sort of hypnotize her for a second before he, you know, tackles her on stage, and the, you know, everybody throws down and beats the crap out of that band. Uh, I, it was, it's so strange. And the thing is, is he's not in this movie much. He's really only got like three or. four four scenes and but every time he's on the screen you can just see him and you're like no wonder this guy's worked for 40 something years you know because he can just be all of these things he's such a chameleon I my wife standing there on the treadmill watching this with me turns around and says it's the Green Goblin I said right I said by the way he'd be really depressed that you know him for that but whatever
1: yeah uh, yeah he's he's so when he shows up they don't overuse him, which I think would be the tendency mm-hmm. to, for somebody with that kind of, that weird magnetism that comes through. And, you know, he the reason he's in this movie is because he'd worked with Catherine Bigelow. And Catherine Bigelow at the time was dating uh, one of Walter Hill's uh, friends. And Catherine Bigelow, when they were talking about this movie, she was like, hey, I just worked with this guy. who would be great for Raven. You should take a look at him. His name's Willem Dafoe. And lo and behold, there's There's Willem Dafoe creeping up the movie in in the way that only he can.
0: And by the way, he has not lost that touch, by the way. He can still be really creepy in a movie. I watched a movie he did a couple years ago called My Hindu Friend. Uh, He's still creepy. He's still creepy. The guy is just creepy. I'm sorry, he's just creepy. So, um and it's all in the face and everything, but he's giving a, a an interesting performance, which I think is neat. But yeah, they they take Ellen, that's the whole bit. And that that's when we get Deborah Van Valkenburg, who I, I didn't realize I'd forgotten was in this. I'm like, it's like Walter Hill's little like, you know, warriors leftovers come, you know, and I almost thought I was like, this is what like that girl probably like ditched the gang and got a real job, moved to Chicago, and now this is what's happened to her. You know, it's like she could she basically played the same person,
1: but I mean, I don't really know that it's supposed to be Chicago. They keep every place they every place they mention is like a section of a different city. So for all we know, this is somewhere in Warriors Land.
0: Yeah, we have no idea because there's that title card. It's like another time, another place, and I'm like. I guess that just means it's nowhere, it's everywhere at the same time. I just think Chicago because of the L's and just the way that that all looks. But the other thing that I got off of this, man, and I really got it when the bombers are taking her, taking Ellen out, out of town and stuff, is Tim Burton borrowed so much of the art direction of this for Batman 89. Like, it is dripping all over that movie. Is th- th- Those are, like, that's a neighborhood over. That Gotham City is right next door to the Richmond and the Battery.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, funnily enough, it uh, was also, like the later movie The Dark Knight was shot in Chicago, this one was also shot, at least partially, in Chicago. Uh, of course, f- famously, Walter Hill spent uh, a couple million dollars to build a park over a giant section of a of the studio back lot for, for other stuff later. But,
0: uh, yeah, well, th- that was also because so much of the cast was underage, and they they couldn't work up late at night, so they had to simulate night by shooting in the day. So. And, and
1: that was a that was a deliberate choice on their part. He wanted the movie to to take place in a world where there was nobody over like twenty five.
0: Yeah, I noticed like that. Like, there's yeah. also nobody under the age of like fifteen either. I mean, it's you you've got this weird section of the Lost Boys founded their own city or something.
1: Yeah, it's like uh, the eternal land of teenagers or something.
0: Yeah, so, and then, and then Tom Cody rolls in. And I know he's only like 26 or whatever at this point, but Michael Pere looks a lot older than everybody on the screen. Maybe it's because he's a foot taller than everybody in the movie. Yeah. Um I love his entrance though. I love how we get him with the the old typewriter of the letters. Dear Tom, I need you to come home. Clink and she mails it to him. He gets on a train and I love how he rolls into town in like he looks like a reject from rebel without a cause, or he was just working on a farm somewhere or something like this. This dude's outfits and his whole like look and everything are, it's so different than like Eddie and the cruisers and stuff, but it, it's so enigmatic too. Like he just eats up <coughs> the screen and I'm not going to sit here and tell you like Michael Perry is the greatest thespian of all time, but I think he knows like what his roles are. And the way he describes this, and I really love this, he said this was a throwback to like 50s and 60s leaning men who were kind of blanks and they were sort of tough and they just plowed through stuff and they didn't get real, you know, up, down one way or the other. They just did the job. It was very John Wayneish and as way he called it. And it made me think that like, man, that's a precursor to modern day comic book movies with the conflicted protagonist. Like the Punisher and I'll tell you who else, he's he's a good uh, run in for Bucky in the, the Captain America series.
1: Yeah, I could definitely see that. And and when they were casting this movie, one of the things that Walter Hill wanted to do He wanted to recreate the movies that he loved as a teenager. So he wanted, you know, that cool Mercury. He wanted all those motorcycles. He wanted music. He wanted uh, the the big, tough uh, hero guy. He wanted a Steve McQueen type. Yeah. So what he was going for was like a young, like Steve McQueen, like the blob era. And slightly afterwards, uh, Steve McQueen.
0: Well, and that would have been right because he wrote The Getaway, which is a big Steve McQueen joint from the 70s. So I could totally see that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And ironically enough, one of the people that was the dude who almost got the role over Michael Buret, and I couldn't think of anybody doing it other than Michael Buret now, one of the people that almost got the role and they couldn't come to terms with him was none other than Mr. Tom Cruise.
0: Oh, wow. Can you imagine that?
1: Think of how much different (laughs) this movie would have been with Tom Cruise as uh, playing Cody.
0: Yeah. Can I just talk about how all the ways that would not have worked, (laughs) <laughs> um, also, also the fact that like Daryl Hanna was up for this or Splash, and so was Diane Lane, and Daryl Hanna got Splash, and Diane Lane got this, and Diane Lane's career allegedly suffered for the you know having done this and not done Splash. And I'm like, but yeah, but you know, look at the longevity there. I don't think anybody's ever going to compare the acting skills of Daryl Hannah and Diane Lane. Uh, but yeah, imagine Daryl Hannah and Tom Cruise in a movie together. First, the visual of that just makes no sense at all because she is a, literally a foot taller than him. Yeah, and and yeah i don't i don't th- i don't think Cruz was at a point where he could play this kind of role yet cuz like risky business was just in his review this is before he became you know all american gi joe hero guy that he's played now for 20 something years and very good but i cannot imagine him as tom cody that is nuts
1: yeah but the just think of the weird energy between him and will defoe yeah that they would have that's... shared in every scene it's such a contrast in like such a big clash of just like general vibe. It's yeah, and, and See, that, I got some stuff to say about Raven that we'll that we'll talk about.
0: Well, that, that's why I think I think Pare works so well is because he is so. Of all of these people in this movie, he is by far the most normal one, if there is one. You know, I mean, it's like, I don't know. He's also doing, like, Charles Brosnan and, you know, Dirty Dozen and all this kind of stuff, too. And and a little bit of Death, Death Wish, too. But, you know, maybe, maybe more so, like... Later death wishes is what this this role is like, but it's also a western too. Like even down to the fact that he's got that Marlin thirty thirty, you know, and all that. I'm like, man, he's even caring. Like this is like a western, and and this is what happens in the cowboy movie. You you hire the the killer to come in, and he does his job, and then he kisses the girl, and he rides on his damn horse out. You know, that's what he does.
1: And, And it's hard when you're talking about Walter Hill to not keep mentioning western tropes. But this movie really is such a western, and and all of Walter Hill's movies end up becoming, end up feeling like westerns. He clearly was a big western guy, especially in his youth, and it's, and I think the choice of that Marlin uh, was deliberate to make it feel like you know kind of like the Rifleman, because uh, mm-hmm. you know he shows up and he has adventures and and then he leaves, you know. It is, and it is a cool looking rifle, I will say that. Dude. And it, it seemed perfect for that character, especially you know with his uh, long coat that uh, I believe he wears later in the movie.
0: Yeah, he's, want, he basically yeah. got a duster on for most of the movie except when he does the big fights. Or yeah. you know, making out with Ellen. Which, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second because my wife was like, did they not dry off from the rain? I was like, apparently not. <laughs> so, because I mean Maybe they only had a minute to shoot it. I don't know. Diane Flame was 18. <laughs> Maybe they were trying to be real careful about that. I don't know. Well, um, that, I think at that point, she she was technically an adult.
1: But. I mean, she was over 18, yeah. But Michael Paré yeah. had never done a love scene. And that's one of the th- things that he fell out with Walter Hill about. Because Walter Hill had to come in and direct him through some ADR uh, for the, the love scene. Mm-hmm. And Walter Hill hated... Having to do that and resented it. And, you know, I think even now Michael Parade would probably work with him again. But, but the feeling, uh, from my understanding, is not mutual.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I also got the feeling that everybody in the cast kept looking at Diane Lane, going, "What are we supposed to do?" Because she had been in like I don't know, fifteen things at that point, so she was by far the the person that knew what she was doing, and the rest of them are just sort of making this up as they go. Um, and and you can tell, like it's it's funny. Uh, we got to talk about McCoy though, Amy Madigan, who again, I. I will honestly say I don't think it has changed her look at all in all of these years, you know, since this movie. She is the perfect fool. And I love her story about this is that this was supposed to be like an overweight Hispanic man and she was like, No 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 you need to let me play that role. And so they renamed it McCoy and, you know, let it be her. And I I like her in this man. She is so much fun as the perfect sidekick.
1: And it's an interesting wrinkle because there's absolutely no hint of sexual tension between her And Cody, and that's as it should be. They both play it like completely. We're just here doing a job, uh, you know, until they become friends, and after that, they're clearly just friends, and that's great. That's not something you get a lot of even today, Uh, so that's always cool to see. It's an interesting dynamic, and uh, I had always operated under the under the belief that the character was supposed to be a lesbian.
0: Yeah, they kind of drop some hints on that. Yeah, but and and you also get the sense that like Reva may be thinking about that too because she gives these longing looks at her out the window as she's walking away at one point.
1: Yeah, definitely, and I think that that's a I like that as an unstated, unstated subtext, and even if it's not intentional, uh, we're going to leave it in.
0: Yeah, no, and again, they have great chemistry together. They're funny. She doesn't take any of his bull, but she also kind of understands why he's sort of hard and tough to get to know and all that, but she can kind of pry it out of him too. I, I liked McCoy. I thought she was great. She's really good with the gun. When they do that rescue scene, she's great when she shoots that one guy and she's talking about shooting him in the balls, you know, next. I'm like, yeah, I believe it. Like, I believe she would shoot all of you right, right now. And uh, I, I, don't, I thought she was good. She, she more than holds her own. We got to talk about the, watching Tom Cody fight, though, because the first fight he gets in is at his, his uh, sister's diner. And I mean, he wrecks that place like Hulk Hogan and No Holds Barred, if you've ever seen that, the way he throws people around the diner there and everything. And I I remember distinctly you and I having a conversation in the Warriors about switchblades are such a big deal. Remember when the butterfly knife took over and we get some awesome butterfly knife porn in this movie?
1: Yeah, and I guarantee you that uh, Michael Parade worked very hard to get that right. And that Walter Hill, and if he hadn't, Walter Hill would have made him do it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. No, he he definitely knew what he was doing, but I love how it's choreographed, too. The guy flips the knife at him. Cody takes it from him, pulls it back together, hands it back to him, slaps him three times, then decks him. I'm like, that was awesome. That was a great fight scene. And that's how he winds up getting that awesome car, that 51 Mercury. And that's when I thought, man, Tom Cody's got to be like a distant cousin of Marion Cobretti, because they got the same taste in cars.
1: <laughs> same taste in cars. They both like long coats. Uh, the only thing he was m- missing was the uh, the revolver with the laser sight on it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, not in this world. I don't think that. I mean, he's he's just. I mean, he's brass sighting down that rifle later on. Man, he's using the bead. He didn't have a scope on it. And <laughs> he's taking stuff out with that. Also, everything he shoots blows up in magnificent fashion. I love that uh cheesy eighties effect. That's what makes this so much fun because it's a you know, nowadays everything's gotta be so dang real that it's like, no, it would make this perfectly ping sound and I know how that rifle sounds, and yada yada. It wouldn't do that. But back in the eighties, man, when you shot a car, it exploded fifty feet in the air.
1: I mean, that's that's what cars are supposed to do, right? Like movie cars anyway, maybe not real life cars.
0: It's another thing I can blame last action hero for ruining for everybody, but maybe one day we'll get around to that one too. Cause I got definitely got thoughts about that, but the daring rescue goes down. I got questions, man. Raven does not put up much of a fight when this goes out. Is it the fact that he realizes he's kind of, you know, caught off guard here or what?
1: Yeah. I think he's been the guy in charge for so long of the battery that like someone coming in to start trouble with him is. Some much needed entertainment. It's a much needed novelty for his day. And I think that that is, that goes into a lot of it. But what's weird to me is how. So the way he looks at, at Cody is the way he looks at, uh, Ellen. Yeah. I, the whole time I'm watching this movie, when he's like, he's talking about, he's getting his gang together or whatever, and they're gonna go after and get, uh, get Tom the whole time I'm sitting there thinking he's going to screw both of your brains out (laughs) and and call it a night. Like there's no, no holes going to remain unplundered in this situation.
0: Well, You've hit on something that I didn't, I didn't know if you had saw it either, but I'm so glad you mentioned it. I got this whole sense that like he may have taken Ellen but he's really interested in Tom in like a a way that's like oh i didn't see that coming like there's definitely a sexual tension between them and maybe it's just the charismatic actors and kind of the machismo that they're both putting off that i'm picking up on but you're right he gives Cody the same looks that he gives Ellen when he goes into like sweet talker on the bed it's it's very um well, it, it puts you in a different situation with this guy because you just you just don't know. Like I don't. know. It's also the way is. I mean, we talked about Dracula, but his face looks like a snake. You know. I mean, he's just. You just look at this guy and you're like, pure evil on the screen in every way. And in 1984, that would have been so risque that it you know blew people's minds. Maybe that's another reason why this movie just didn't click. Is people just couldn't handle that.
1: Yeah, and that's definitely it's definitely understandable because it's it's a lot but it 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 kind of fits with the whole thing about uh you know McCoy is she or isn't she a, a lesbian is is or is not raven bisexual i it feels like to me that he he's down for any kind of novel experience and yeah, what novel yeah. means to him is not going to be what novel means to to normal people i mean he's wearing pvc overalls <laughs> that alone yeah. is a signifier of something
0: well all all of his whole thing he is a leather daddy i mean completely let's just say it and the the cowboy bar where again the the uh precursor to captain clegg's uh, band from rob zombie movies uh is playing while um flash dance dances over to the side um it that whole thing feels like I don't know, nightmare on Elm Street 2 biker bar stuff. You know, like I just needed the gym coach to come out and make him run laps at the end of it. Like we were we were definitely in that territory.
1: Yeah, that's uh he's he's a little uh uh what's his name? Everett McGill. Yeah. Stairs ish.
0: Yes. There's a little bit of that. Um but playing different sensibilities. But, yes, yeah, the same stuff. But th- that's what I love about this is he's like, I'm coming for you. It's going to be there. And I'm I'm going back to, like, all this, you know, high noon and, uh, you know, old cowboy movies where, like, you know, the bad guy's coming on the train and he's going to be here at this certain time. And, I mean, the cops even play into that later. And I don't know. It's I it, it sets up the right tension. And that's what got me is like the big rescue happens in the first third of the movie. Like, normally that would be the climax of the movie, but we get that out of the way quick. And then we spend the next bit basically redoing the Warriors for 25 minutes, where our you know people go from place to place and play a game of Grand Theft Auto swapping cars so they can get back home.
1: Right down to a bus that looks suspiciously similar to the bus from the Warriors.
0: Yes, it does. Yes, it does. The, uh, Driven by our doo group. Yeah, Yeah,
1: that so. the Turnbull ACs were using. Maybe they sold it to uh, the Sorrells.
0: Yeah, they had a thousand bucks in that van or that bus. We were told so, Uh, but I know I love how all that works. But we also get everybody else gets to play along here too. Like we realize Billy's from the battery, you know, but he's come up out of it, so he's trying to like deny his. You know, stuff, but when you know it comes down to him having to pay off the cops and stuff, he actually does a pretty good job. Like, you, that's one thing about this is normally a character like that, you would, you know, he's a weasel and you, we would all hate him and think he's just completely useless, but he actually serves some purpose. And that's not the kind of thing that a lesser movie would bother to pay agency to to let a character like that have a, a winning moment where he has you know, reasons for Tom to ever believe like he's actually pretty good for Alan.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, much like in real life, weasels weasels are very useful.
0: Uh, yeah, so. my wife was like, would, would anybody ever wind up with a rock and roll guy like that? And I was like, have you seen who some of these rock producers are married to? I was like, please. I was like, yes. Like, Shania Twain used to be married to Mutt Lang. All right, yeah, yeah it, it happens, okay? so
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I mean, It's actually not a
0: bad comparison either. Not that Mutt Lang looks anything like Rick Moranis, but Diane Lane does look a lot like Shania Twain, or maybe the other way around.
1: That's uh, a that's a good a, pull there. That's a good choice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So except one can actually sing and the other can act amazing. So, you know. Right. Um, I've seen the Cotton Club. I'm sorry, Diane. So you know it's, it's not it's not your thing. There's reasons Diamond Steinmanet is his studio singers uh, doing those those parts. Uh, but yeah, th- we get this whole again remake of the Warriors. Like I said, where we're just blasting through the neighborhoods. Um, I love how the shotgun just you know completely blows the cop cars into smithereens and the old Studebakers and all that stuff. I mean, again, this, this movie's in such weird time places. It's it's fun to, to watch. But I love how. We finally all get back together and Reva's the one that really calls it out that, you know, Billy and Tom are both really selfish and they're kind of fighting over the same girl, you know, and this whole tension has been going on forever of are Ellen and Tom going to get back together. And the only thing I'll ding this movie for is they do give that short shrift. Like literally Diane Lane runs out in the rain and says, what was I supposed to do? looks like she's freezing to death because it's probably like 40 degrees with the the rain machine going. And then he does the big sweeping grabber kiss. And the next thing you know, they're in bed together. And I'm like, "We, we, we paid no attention to like how to set that up at all.
1: Yeah, but it's kind of Walter Hill. One of the things he wanted in the movie was a big kiss in the rain. Mm-hmm. And he got it, and I, they went back and added more stuff for Diane Lane to do because she had she was so impressive. Uh, in while while they had her, they're like, "Oh, no, this girl's really good. We need to. She's got to do more stuff." And, and I believe that that's one of the things that they added. But they also had to do some editing to keep the movie at a PG rating because the studio wanted to make sure that it it didn't cross over into our territory. So who knows what ended up on the cutting room floor
0: which is amazing because I'm not making it up folks. Like the outfit that the, the fishnet girl in the, uh, Raven's bar or whatever what she is in like that was a PG movie in 1984. Nowadays that would not work at all. Like I don't, you could buy, get by on that on like late night Cinemax or, you know, 9 PM lifetime or something, but not, not, uh, not, not in 1984, but it was before PG 13 was really a thing. So, um, I understood they cut a lot of F bombs out. You can kind of see people's faces turn and then their voices work. And I'm like, Oh, we did some dubbing uh, to fix that, but uh, that's okay. So I, I, I kind of like the fact, though, that, yeah, they do get the big, like, Casablanca, you know, kiss scene or whatever. Um, It's... It's cheesy, no doubt, but it still kind of works. The thing that they gave Diane Lane to do, which is one of the added scenes, and I love this, is that she's got like this super fan that starts tagging along with her and eventually becomes like I don't know, part of the costume mistresses of the night or whatever you know, rock singers have. And she's talking to her about like, oh, you just make these songs sound so great. She's like, I don't write nothing. Billy buys them or steals them, whatever. And it's kind of the thing of the you know, a lot of rock and roll music is there's these iconic people, but they don't create anything. At least they they a lot of times they they suffer from that imposter syndrome like well i didn't write that is it really mine but then i love how the fan sort of says no like when you do it it makes it yours and all that so i I just thought that was so neat because that kind of scene has no business in this movie other than the fact that you've got an an, a talent in diane lane you want to give her stuff to do and it humanizes that ellen character so much more
1: yeah that's it's a really interesting choice to not make her it's weird how much this movie leans on the actual workings of the music industry. Yeah. Because that's definitely a real conversation that people have had. And, you know, there are some, you know, back in the day, back in whenever this movie may have been set, who knows? uh, To me, it, it feels like Billy Fish is, could make, could make a star out of pretty much anybody. But like he can he can make a mega star out of someone who's actually got talent, and, mm-hmm. and he's got that he's got that good eye for the Sorrells. He's got the who he later signs uh, after their adventure, and it's fun to watch, especially to watch him in that scene in where they're just riding around in the bus and the the, the are singing, and it's fun to watch him listen, and you can kind of see. In his uh, in in his expression and in his eyes, he's being won over by this group, and he's thinking of angles. Like he's clearly the, the whole time he's watching him. He's like, you know, I think I could do something with this. Let's let's see what we got.
0: And I think it's too is that Ellen is like, hey guys, I know what it's like to you know, struggle to find a gig. I get it. So obviously he believes in her, and so that turns his eyes and ears to go like, okay, I'll give him a listen, and then he hears something and he's like, okay, it's actually pretty good. You know, and then it, it turns out they put on put on a grand performance. We'll get to them in just a sec, but we've got to step up a few more things. I love this police chief here. I've seen this dude in so much stuff. Uh, just just a cool character who comes in, and his uh, you know deputy dewey or whatever rick rosevich um this is such a trip in this movie but i love it. he's like tom you got to leave town because the ravens come before i won't be standing here waiting on him and i'm like man that's like every western i've ever seen and i the only part of this that boy you talk about just doesn't doesn't work well in modern sensibilities is tom and ellen and mccoy get on a train and tom straight cold cocks ellen <laughs> Hits her right up in the head, knocks her out and tells McCoy, you go that way on the train, I'm going back to the Richmond to, you know, take care of, take care of business.
1: Yeah, that's, that's definitely an element that wouldn't fly today, but it was also definitely an element that would have happened in a Western movie.
0: Yeah, or, or, you know, a 50s movie too, like, let's just say it, like, that's, you know sometimes you smack the dame around in those flicks sorry that's just how it was so i mean that's how the movies were um and it's it, you you're supposed to forgive him for it because it's heroic and later she she plays it off like it's no big deal. But it's also kind of sad. It's like, well, uh, that's probably not the first time that happened, sadly. Eh. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's weird. So, But uh, but no, the whole thing is to set up this showdown, man. And we got to talk about the, the bombers show up, the army of cops show up, and then the more bombers come out. <clears throat> and it's like, man, we're going to get full-on warfare right here in the streets. But really, no, it's all about one guy versus another guy and a couple of sledgehammers.
1: Yeah, that the sledgehammer fight—it it took four weeks for them to shoot that.
0: Oh my goodness!
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and you can tell because it's really well choreographed. It's really well done, and they do a—they do a really great job of hiding a lot of the seams where it's edited together. Mm-hmm. And it's like a four-minute fight scene, so that's—you know—that's not easy to do, especially back before you could cheat CGI.
0: there's a, there's a lost art to shooting long fight scenes that aren't like part of a sport. You know what I mean? Like the seventies were full of movies where you get fistfights that just lasted and lasted and lasted, you know? Um, and the early eighties did a little bit of it too. And we just don't do that anymore. Um, there's another cheese movie. Speaking of John Carpenter, they live as, as like the infamous fight scene that just goes on forever. You know, Um,
1: one of us is going to bring that up.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Eventually it was coming around, but, but I, I'm the thing about this one is, yeah, I realized like, gosh, this goes on a good while, but it's, it's so engaging. And like when Tom's got him dead to rights and he throws the sledge away, you're like, no idiot. That's a bad move. And he gets his ass kicked for it. And that's the other thing too, is it's, It's very much a – it's not Schwarzenegger versus some other, you know, hunk of beef or anything like that. It's two regular-looking dudes, one of which is a good bit taller, but still two regular-looking dudes just beating the crap out of each other in the streets. And then it has that Looney Tunes ending where Raven's just standing there and he just sort of taps him and he falls over. I would love that.
1: Yeah, that's definitely – the Looney Tunes is a great choice for that. And I guarantee you that's exactly what Walter Hill was going for because Mm – uh, again, we've talked quite a bit about his influences, but you're right. This is such a, it's such a good fight scene between two dudes who look like they can fight like that. I mean, Willem Dafoe's shorter, but Willem Dafoe is also Willem Dafoe. You
0: can't even yeah, we, we should say he's absolutely cut out of out of you know stone.
1: Yeah, he's he, number one. He's shredded and lean. Number two, he's c- clearly crazy. Yes, and you know. Who, who knows what's going on behind those weird eyes because he doesn't seem to be shook at any point in the fight. And it's nice to, and it's nice to see a, a, a movie fight, particularly a big climactic fight, where they're fairly evenly matched and it could have pretty easily gone one way or the other at certain points. But, you know, you do get the good guy coming out on top at the end. And to me, the, the Looney Tunes moment isn't necessarily the little push. But the, the, the part where everyone in the crowd pulls out rifles.
0: Yes. Yeah. Like the, the, the townspeople have now all rearmed as well, along with the cops. And they're not going to take it anymore. And the bombers are like, we're done. That's, it's time to go.
1: Yeah. And it's, fun that, it's funny that the cop was all talking about arresting Raven. And yet at the end, the bombers get to carry him away.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that too. Like, usually in these kind of movies, or particularly the Western motif, this is a gunfight and somebody dies, right? In in a movie full of gun porn, like, nobody gets shot. There's no, it's two guys beat the hell out of each other, and one of them beats the other one, and then the loser goes away in shame. And it's like, well, that, and you get the sense that, like, that's it, (laughs) you know? Because now the bombers know, oh, this whole town is armed to the teeth. Maybe we shouldn't (laughs) come back here.
1: Yeah, they're not going to try this kind of thing again, at least not in, in the Richmond. But yeah, it's the original ending was Tom uh, was Thomas supposed to stab him. Ooh. And the studio cut it. Because you don't really want a movie. You can't really have a PG movie where a guy gets stabbed to death. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not in the degree that they were going to show it anyway. So it's pretty... It, uh, to me, the, even the adulterated fight scene still kind of works because you get... You know, good has clearly triumphed over evil, and you can tell that things are going to be different uh, going forward, without necessarily completely eliminating the bad guy.
0: Yeah, it's it's just that they slink away, and that's how evil triumphs. Is you you, you stand up and you do the right thing, and then now he's also inspired this place to stand up for itself a little bit. And that's that's the Western motif, is like you learn how to fight for yourself as much as you learn how to fight, you know, with me. Like I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Silverado, but that's really how the end of that one goes down too, is normal people start fighting back. And that's you know, that was in a ton of Clint movies too, Clint Eastwood movies. So I like the whole the whole idea here. I love that we're going to end in another concert because Ellen and they were like, "Well, I guess we got to make up for that show that got radically interrupted by the gang uh, violence." So uh, let me do one show, and I'm going to introduce this new act here too. The Sorrells get to do "I Can Dream About You." Dan Hartman famously says he that song made more money than this movie did, and I think I believe him because I had no idea that song was from this movie. I had no clue at all.
1: Yeah, that's it was. It's, it, it definitely caught me by surprise uh, the first time I saw it because like that song was from the movie yeah and I was like did they do it like did they buy the song to put it in the movie and it's like no, they recorded the song for the movie.
0: Yeah. It's so, it's so strange to think about. I mean, you know, the idea is that Streets of Fire was, was a Springsteen too that they were trying to get. And I don't know, for some reason I know that he backed out at the last minute. So they ended up, you know, going with the next St- Steinman song, which I think is a better idea. I don't think the, the Springsteen which, song would have worked.
1: Which apparently he wrote in two days.
0: Right. Yeah. Which is another thing too, that I can totally believe. And it should blow your mind if you listen to that song. Realize <laughs> That was written in two days. Like that's because it's a, Friggin' opus, but, and it's so perfect for the end of this, but, but what's fun is to watch the Sorrells do that, that, uh, that number. And if you look and you've paid attention enough, you know all of those actors from other things. Most of the time, because a lot of them have been famous for playing like tough cops later in their life and stuff like that, or Agent Johnson, uh, and you know, or a bad guy in a James Bond movie. Uh, Grant Bush was in, but yeah, like you see oh, yeah. all of these guys in, in other things, except for Stoney Jackson. Like that's the one probably people maybe don't know as well as the other three guys. But like you look at them and you're like. But they're doing all the moves of, like, Jermaine Jackson and, you know, Michael and all that kind of stuff from the 80s. It's, it's the perfect fit for that tune. And then the fact that they join in on Tonight Is What It Means To Be Young is really cool. And it just makes that whole gang vocal seem much more, you know, realistic. But all that's happening because Tom Cody and Billy Fish have this great conversation. You know, where Fish is like, I understand, man. You guys got a thing. You know, we're, you know we'll we'll go with it. It's cool. And he's like, no, nah, you're actually better for her. And it's that's the hero at the end of Casablanca saying, yeah, You really need to be with the guy that's better for you, not with maybe me, even though maybe you, you love me. But if you need me, I'll always be around. You know, I'm your your protector or, or punisher or whatever. Dial so, a man.
1: Speaking of punisher, you just. Put the thought in my head that Michael Pare would have been a great Punisher.
0: You an awesome Punisher. Yeah, they they missed on that. Sorry, Dolph, but they they blew that one.
1: Yeah, and I like Dolph as the Punisher, but you know, Michael Pare was has the features for it. But yeah, it's that whole ending scene. It, it's it was weird because I was watching the movie. And I was like, all oh, those the Surrells all look like people I know.
0: And, and you do.
1: Yeah, you do because one of them, is Robert Townsend. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> Yep. And McKelty Williamson. Yep. It's like, I can't believe Meteor Man and Bubba are in the same movie <laughs> in 1984.
0: <laughs> right? You know, I mean- yeah. Of all things, right? To see these people that's what makes this kind of thing fun is you see all these people and you realize like this was a studio catching young people when before they were a thing. And then when you see them do stuff later on, it's like, oh, now you know you see kind of where they start. It's always fun to, to see. I mean, it's what's neat about what you know, Diane Lane's had such a storied career and done so many things, you know, and is really a dramatic actress and all this stuff. But to see her do this kind of I mean, total different kind of role is what's fun to watch. Cause she, you see the seeds of just how talented she is and how good she is. And like all the stuff she's ever done and, you know, Academy and award nominated rightfully so by the way, unfaithful is an amazing movie and, and she's awesome in it. And, you see all the seeds of it here, you know, but I I love it that our hero does the heroic thing. You know, they have one last kiss. It's that I can dream about you. It's a perfect song for that. And then he's getting ready to walk out, but first they got to put on, she's putting on her big rock and roll, you know, number here with the, with tonight. And I love how he walks through the crowd and he gives one last look over his shoulder. And then he walks out the front and he's getting ready to head off as that song is banging in the background and we get to end with the perfect moment of McCoy pulling up in his car, going, "Hey, you want to tag along? That's okay, you know." And you get the sense that, like, yeah, these are definitely like you know Starsky and Hutch now. These two are definitely partners.
1: Yeah, and it's unfortunate we never got the uh, trilogy of movies that uh, that Walter Hill had wanted to do because I think they would have been great. I mean, oh, we, yeah. did get, we did get a, a, a sequel in like 2007, an unofficial, an unofficial sequel that um, Albert Pion did where he got Michael Paré and Deborah Van Valkenburg back together playing Cody and Riva. But, uh, you know, it would have been really neat to see what Walter Hill could have done with, you know, Cody and McCoy further adventures.
0: Oh, no, absolutely. It would, it, I would have been down for that too, but alas, the box office wasn't there and it didn't happen. And so we you we, we can only we can only dream of what that was. But Ron, it's time to give final thoughts and recommendations and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Streets of Fire?
1: I said I, I gave it away in the beginning. I love this movie. Uh it is such a blast from beginning to end. It's one of the it's one of the things that gave me the idea for our uh, Rock and Roll Dystopia summer series because I just wanted an excuse to talk about the Streets of Fire. Uh, it, 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 it is loaded top to bottom with people you know from other stuff that are great in what they're doing. You get some great work from Rick Moranis playing really hard against type. Uh, Diane Lane is, is just magnetic Little Defoe is so unsettling, you just can't look away from the guy. Michael Perret is kind of the perfect, you know, white brick hero man, right down to his, to the way he's talking. The, the kind of monosyllabic silentness that is clearly evoking like a Clint Eastwood type. Um, you know, it, it's, to me, Streets of Fire is like, the prequel to the warriors like 20 years from now, this is what this society ends up becoming uh, for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, it, it's great. And I'm going to go with an extra large popcorn. Uh, I try not to give that rating out too much, but man, this movie is just so good from top to bottom. And you know, like we've talked about throughout this, it, it was such an arduous production for everybody involved, but the results on the screen were so good. It's so influential, and I mean, you could cut any one of these concert scenes out of this movie, put it on MTV in 1987, and it'll fit right in, because it looks just like the concert scenes from, you know, Money for Nothing, it looks like the concert scenes from the Grateful Dead Touch of Grey video, it looks like about two-thirds of Duran Duran's music videos, uh, clearly, Russell Mulcahy, who did all the a bunch of the Duran Duran music videos and who did Highlander and a bunch of other stuff, clearly he he has become. He, clearly, he was influenced quite a bit by Walter Hill as well, because right down to the use of the permanently wet streets and the neon. Um, so, it might not have been a fun to make, but man, the results really show up on screen, and it is especially neat to see. All these people that you know from other things when they were like 25. So, yeah, I'm gonna go extra large popcorn. Uh, There's no way I could not because this movie's a blast.
0: Watching this again brought back so many great memories I had of seeing this when I was a kid. And it had been it's been probably 25 years since I watched this movie and I've watched it twice just for this retrospective. I now own it uh, because I was like, I, yes, this must be in the collection because there's so much about this movie that still works today and resonates throughout modern movies. Again, folks, if you like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and kind of the conflicted protagonists that they have littered throughout that, you need to watch this movie. Uh, if you like Westerns, you need to watch this movie. Um, if you like stuff like the Warriors, you need to watch this movie. Um, and if you like just kicking soundtracks that make you know, maybe sometimes are more famous than the movie, you need to watch this movie because this movie is littered with great music throughout it, but it doesn't overpower it. Cause, uh, forever, I thought I, I had misremembered that like this was like a rock and roll musical, and it's really not. The musical numbers are there to serve the plot. Much like Eddie and the Cruisers, uh, which is I think is a a well-regarded film, and most people really like it, even though it's a smaller film. This one is one that maybe you've forgotten or you didn't know was there, but you owe it to yourself to watch it. Um, And and yeah, it's not perfect. There's some parts of it that don't quite work, because again, you had a director that refused to tell his actors what to do, and (laughs) some actors that desperately needed him to tell them what to do, uh, but... It still all works in the end. And like you say, man, for Walter Hill to gripe and talk about how he didn't know what he was doing, he set the template for how to do music videos for 20 years um, with, with this movie. There's so much that this influences, but just by itself, as a standalone story... Man, it is so much fun to watch. You're never bored throughout the 94 minutes of it. And at, at no time because this movie won't let you be bored. It throws you right in the deep end and we're on we're in, you know, deep water from the beginning and this movie doesn't stop and it is so much fun, and I'm so glad we got to do it to wrap up this rock and roll dystopia retrospective. This one is a, a high mark, and I don't give this out often either, but this is definitely extra large popcorn territory. And Tom Cody is one of the most underappreciated and forgotten heroes of cinema and deserves to be uh, recognized and, and seen uh, for what it is. So definitely go check it out. Streets of Fire, both run a high on today very cool folks you can find archives of our podcast in our podcast feeds and on our website filmstrippodcast.com please leave us a positive review wherever you find the show follow the show on twitter and instagram at filmstrippod or search Filmstrip Podcast on facebook to connect with us there we'd appreciate it if you share the show and we thank you for your support and from ron i'm jay thank you for listening to filmstrip thank you for
1: listening to filmstrip